We're going to be in that same passage, so if you opened up there already in your Bible, 2 Samuel 13 is where we'll be. Uh, if you didn't, uh, please grab a Bible f- or open the Bible app, and, and let's, we'll follow along that. I want to kind of pick up on where we were last week. Last week, we saw David, as he worked his way into some pretty bad sins, as he worked his way into doing some things uh, that were really bad. Uh, I had an affair. He ends up murdering a guy. I mean, all these things go wrong. And, and what we looked at was that a guy who had been up until this point had been quite a godly man, had been a godly leader, had been uh, a great example. And again, we always say not the hero of the story, that Jesus is the hero of the story, but he was a good example. And he had been a godly man, allows this sin into his life, and it changes him, right? And, and it impacts him, and it impacts the rest of his life. And so we looked at how he had to walk through the decisions that he had made. And even though he was forgiven, right, eternity was fine, heaven was fine, God forgives, but even in the midst of that, he had to walk back through the penalty of his sin. And I want to build on that today and look at the impact of our sin on others, right? And oftentimes we think of our sin in terms of things we choose to do or or maybe we consensually do with someone or whatever, but we, we don't recognize that our sin impacts others. So I want to remind us where we left off, not where we left off, but we talked about last week in 2 Samuel 12. We'll put this up for you. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. One of the things when, when David admits to his sin and begins to repent that God tells him will be true because of his actions is this, the sword or death will not depart from his house that this will be a perpetual problem. Now, that means the people dying, at minimum, will be impacted by David's sin. A direct relationship because of David's choices is going to be death, right? And there were other things. We know that that Bathsheba lost a child to this, and, and that all these things take place. Uriah lost his life, right? So as a starting point today, how our sin affects others. Here's a note for you. David's sins affect his entire family for several years. Christians often view sin as personal and overlook the impact on others. Our actions affect others. And so we're going to look at that today, how our sin affects other people. And so 2 Samuel 13, back in verse 1, says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So we can do the math, right? David's son plus David's son, who has a sister, means they're siblings, right? And so what's going on here? At, in David's family is David has married multiple women. That's part of the problem, to be fair, right? And so he has children with these women. And so he has a son with this woman and a son with another woman. And these two sons consider themselves brothers because they are, they're half brothers, right? I've got a, I've got, I try to think, we just say brother and sister, but I have a stepsister uh, when my, my dad remarried. I have two half sisters from the new marriages and that would be normal if that was true two years ago. But since we grew up together, we've just always said brother and sister, right? And we just kind of skip the how we are, right? Even the one that we're only related by marriage, we've grown up, we spent our whole lives growing up together. So we're brother and sister, right? And, and that's what happens here is they talk about being brothers, but then one of them has a sister and the other is attracted to her. Verse two, and Amnon was so tormented that he, him, that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That's 
a lot of crush right there, right? He literally makes himself sick over his desire for this girl. And, and we, can, we can see this and we can understand that, but imagine this. Take it out of lust or desire. Take it out of something sexual and think about any of the other things that we allow in our lives that can end up controlling us, right? Anger. That we can be so angry, right, that it just kind of takes over. In fact, David has experienced that. If you think back to the, the week that we kind of refer back to a lot of where Nabal rejects David. After David caring for Nabal's shepherds and his flocks and all that, he asked Nabal for a favor. Hey, will you send some food that we can feast? There is a feast time. They want to do that. And Nabal outright rejects and disrespects David. And he just kind of flips in that moment. He gets angry and that anger consumes him. And he begins to ride with all his soldiers over to destroy this man and his whole house in this village, right? And we've been talking about that because in the middle of that, where David's mind is set on killing Nabal and his family and his servants and everything that breathes in that village, Nabal's wife rides out, Abigail rides out, and she apologizes on behalf of her husband, and she gives David what he had asked for to begin with, and she pleads with him not to go in and do that. And we've been talking about that moment where God provides a way out of the sin that we are headed to do, right? And I just think of it like a freeway. We're flying on the freeway, and there's off-ramps. There's opportunity to get off this freeway that we're speeding towards this sin. And, and that sin can be sexual. That can be where Amnon is. So it could be anger. It could be unforgiveness and bitterness. It could be anything. But what we see are these, these kind of off-ramps, these opportunities where we don't have to go through the thing that we've already committed in our mind to doing. And so Amnon is tormented and ill. He's consumed with thinking about Tamar, and he allows it to just kind of take over his life. Scripture talks about take every thought captive, right? That we have the ability to capture our thoughts, that we have the ability to stop thinking about something. But if we allow that to go too far, the next thing you know, we're doing it. And we're off engaged in that, and it's taken over. It takes on a life of its own. Verse 3, it says, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. So this is a side note from experience. Whenever you have a friend that is described as a very crafty man, felonies are in your future, right? That's you're headed down a road that is not good, right? He has a friend who is known for being a very crafty man. Verse 4, And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her, her hand. So Jonadab, he says, well, here's an idea, play sick, right? And, and, and if you're sick and your dad comes in to visit you to see how you're doing, ask him to send Tamar into you, right? And again, we're going from this place where Amnon has kind of made himself sick over dwelling on this issue, on this desire for Tamar. But he's not done it yet. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't acted on it yet. But now he's shared it. And this other guy comes with a plan. Well, here's, here's how we get her over here, right? And you've got to think of all these, these kind of bail points where Amnon could have just said, no, bad idea, right? Like, no, let's not do that. Like, I got to get out of this, right? I got to get my head out of this space but he's going to go through with it, right? Verse 6, so Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill, 
And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister, it's the first time he refers to her that way, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So he does this. He goes through it. He plays sick. He lays down and, and it you know, becomes known in the home. Okay, so Amnon's sick. So David goes to check on him, right? Now, King David, right? David, who has been this leader of Israel that really is kind of the focus of First and Second Samuel. So David, this guy, right? And this is set in the context of him and his failures with Bathsheba. Just last chapter was this big narrative of his failure sexually and then in trying to cover it up, right? And, and there were these moments as he's up on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba and he has this desire for her. Well, there was that moment to take that thought and kind of, okay, got to quit going down this road. I'm married. I've got this going on. But then he says, okay, well, who is it? Well, that's the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers. Okay, another moment to go, okay, she's married. Let's just, you know, hard right, let's get out of here, right? Then he sends for her, and she comes in, and, she comes in and, and they sleep together, and then they find out she's pregnant, and they send for Uriah, her husband, right? And there's another place where he could have just said, listen, well, you're out fighting a battle for me. I was at home making huge mistakes, and here's what's up. But he doesn't do that, right? He tries to send Uriah home so that Uriah will sleep with his wife, and then they can just pretend this pregnancy is his. And when that doesn't work because he's a stand-up guy and he stays with his, the servants instead of going home, then David tries to get him drunk and send him home after that the next night, and he still doesn't do that. So instead, David sends him out and says, put him at the front of the war, and let him be killed, withdraw from him, leave him out there hanging, right? And so all of this, this is David's sins, and he, as he's confronted with them by the prophet Nathan, he walks them back, he repents, I've, I've sinned against God, and God says, you're forgiven, but here's the penalty. And here's what's going to happen, this is going to follow, this is going to impact you and your family for the rest of your life. Yes, you can be forgiven, but there's still a penalty to our choices, and that's where we spent time last week. Well, here's a part of it. We're going to see that what David has built into him, the, the things that are wrong inside of David, we're going to see them lived out in his sons. So Tamar, verse 8, went to her brother's house, and he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes with, in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him, and Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother. So Amnon's going down this road. He's got this whole made-up story. He's playing sick. He's got his sister now into the area of the place where he is, and he's calling her into the bedroom, right? And here's a sister who's trying to be a good sister who has no idea what else is going on. She's just caring for her brother who is sick. Verse 11, but when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come, lie with me, my sister. I don't know if there's a creepier sentence ever written, right? Like, come sleep with me, sister. Like, it's just weird, right? That's where Amnon is, though. He's been down this road so long in his own brain, that's what he says. So he's made up this entire setting, this story, this, this lie to get her in the room. And now is where he kind of pulls the bait and switch. Right now he, realizes, he, gives, he tells her that he's not sick. And he tries to pull her into bed. Verse 12, she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. 
For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Remember how we said there's always an out, right? She's trying to provide him those off-ramps. She even goes as far as saying, well, why don't we talk to the king? Why don't we talk to our dad, right? And he won't withhold me from you. You have to unplug from 21st century Western American family setting, and you have to kind of go back 3,500 years to this. And it doesn't make it any more right, but the culture is very, very different. And so a young virgin, if a man uh, slept with her, it was, it was as if he was committing to marry. And that's not a way of saying, I want to marry you, meaning if they did that, then he was obligated then to marry her. By taking her purity, he was taking on that relationship. And so she's giving him that moment, like, well, let's just, you know, she says, ask the king, because it's weird. Let's just ask our dad, right? Because that's even worse, probably. But like, hey, there's other ways, either no, right? Or you're going to affect me for the rest of my life. You're going to affect you for the rest of your life. Or maybe we talk to our dad. Maybe we find a way through this, right? Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, she was, he violated her and lay with her. So being stronger than her, he drags her into bed and he rapes his sister, right? So we look at this and when we talk about sin in church, typically we approach things from Amnon's side, Amnon's side of this story or David's side of his story. And I was asked earlier last week, uh, after the Sunday message, like, okay, well, did David force himself upon Bathsheba? And some have said that, and, and I, I think if you, if you live in a modern-day kind of Me Too culture, there's a lot of inference in that. There's nothing in Scripture that says he did, but there's clearly a relationship where he is king of the, you know, rising nation. He's one of the most powerful people on the planet, and she's some chick who's married to a soldier, right? I mean, there is a power dynamic there. And then maybe he abuses that to be with her. It doesn't say that for sure. It doesn't say that. But in our culture of watching TV and hearing about movie moguls, you know, telling actresses to sleep their way to the top kind of thing, like we hear some of that. And for sure in this setting, Amnon forces himself on her. And so we always kind of treat the story from the side of God's forgiveness of sin. But the gospel does more than that. Yes, it includes that. We talk about God creating us and designing us and, and calling us to be worshipers and that we fail, that we choose to fail, that we go the other direction. And because of that, Jesus enters into humanity and lives a sinless life and dies a death to forgive our sins. And all that is true, but more takes place there. Jesus' death is to cover our sin. But as we talk about new life and the resurrection, because Jesus raises from the grave, we are given new life. And as Jesus ascends back to the throne in heaven, where we await his return, he gives us his spirit, all those things to transform us. But one of the parts that we talk about sometimes, but not all the time, is that it's not just about sins we've committed, it's about sins that have been committed against us. That in the gospel, God doesn't just forgive sin, but he also heals and redeems the sins that have been committed against us. And, and as that takes as we wrap our minds around the Tamar side of the story, we have to look at what does the gospel do for those who have been affected by our sin? 
which circles us back to our point today. Our sin always impacts other people. No matter if we think we're doing something and the other people involved are all consenting to this and and we're doing this willingly, which might have been David and Bathsheba, or we're doing it forcefully, like Amnon and Tamar. Sins always affect others. Let's assume for the minute that David and Bathsheba are both consenting to this. Well, the rest of, well, Uriah for sure is impacted by this, right? And and just, and the other families, the families of David, and then the product of a new family, new wife, everybody is affected by this, whether we think so or not. And here in this moment, no one is affected more than Tamar as these sins have been committed against her. So verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that he hated her, the hate, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. This is common, this is true, and it's absolutely wrong, right? She did nothing, but now he views her differently. And, he, and he, what he doesn't see is that it's his sin that he's seeing. It's, it's his sin that has changed her. She did nothing wrong. She pled to him, don't do this. Right? Let's find another way around this. But now as he's done this, there's a distinction. And now he hates her. And, it's, and, it, and if you're Tamar, it is absolutely unfair. It's true. It's common. And it's totally unfair. Verse 18, but she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. You have to remember, this is a culture where if you sleep with a woman, a young woman who's a virgin, you just bought the the responsibility of being her husband. And so as he sends her away, she's like, no, you can't do this. Like that shame is greater than the first thing. Like now I'll never have a life. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put on ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and, and went away crying aloud as she went. So much here that we could go into, right? The expectations when young women think one thing, what men want in them one way, and then find out it's actually not that way at all, right? And, and the things that our culture tells us, and then they don't work out that way at all, and, and the things that, that Amnon does, and, and how it changes their dynamics, and all the sin, and all the kind of the psychology in this moment, we could spend days on. But I want to look at how Jesus treats people who have been sinned against, right? We always look at the forgiveness of our sin side, and that's necessary, and that's needed, and that's part of the story today. But what about Tamar? And so you guys know the story. There's a woman who's been caught in adultery that is brought to Jesus, right? And the religious leaders bring her to Jesus. And I, I love how it's, it kind of sets the story up. She was caught in the act of adultery. What does that mean? She was caught with somebody else, right? But only her, only the woman is being brought to Jesus. Now, the background of the story is that the religious leaders have been trying to get Jesus to do something to cause people not to like him. They've been trying to trip him up. And and with every time they bring a question they think is a gotcha moment, 
He overcomes it. He's got a better answer than they had anticipated. And so here's their moment. They find this woman who is absolutely guilty, and the law says we can stone her. We put her to death for her sin, which, by the way, you can also put to death the man she was sleeping with, but he's not there. And so the religious leadership bring her to Jesus, and they want to ask this question, so what do we do with her? And the idea is, if he says uphold the law and stone her, the people will reject him. But if he says, well, overlook it, then he's rejecting Moses and we have him. But see, Jesus got better answers than that. And he deals with both sides of the equation. So here it is, John 8, 7 says this, and as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So he says this, listen, you're right. She deserves to die for her sin. She should be stoned. So I'm going to say any of you, whoever with you is without sin, whoever's sinless, you throw the first stone, right? You, you go first and she'll be dead. And as you guys probably know the story, it says they all leave, all the religious leaders leave and they say they leave in order from oldest to youngest, right? As the older ones recognize, yeah, we're never going to get through this. But what the story doesn't always emphasize is there is someone there who is sinless. There is someone who can throw the first stone. There is someone who can execute justice on her and penalize her for her sin. It's Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he deals with the other side of the equation. So verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, my Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman is brought to him, and she is destitute. She's been caught in the act of a sin, again, 2,000 years ago, that could cause her death. And instead of letting that, that penalty for her sin be played out on her, but also instead of making little of her sin, he is able to navigate both sides. That the gospel, that his love for humanity, that his death and his forgiveness, that it's for everyone, but it also the healing and the redemption is found in the gospel. So in, her, in him not condemning her, he begins to restore her and heal her to God. And he also forgives her for sin. And he says, go and sin no more. There's, there's this, he doesn't make light of sin, but he also makes much of redemption. And so we see on both sides, both her sin and being sinned against in this culture as he navigates through that with the gospel. So whether you've been the one sinning, which we all are guilty of that, whether it's our sin or we've been sinned against, which that's happened too, right? We've all been sinned against. I just think of growing up, and as I mentioned, a half-sister and a stepsister and a stepbrother, or no, See, I never, we never say this. So stepsister, and then a half-sister and a half-brother, right? So with all that, that's because I grew up, from, I came up from a broken home. And my parents divorced when I was five, and then both were remarried by the time I was turning eight years old and having other children, right? And I didn't understand how much for a long time, but that divorce impacted the rest of my life. And, and I didn't understand how much until I was much older and adult and kind of thinking through my life and how that impacted me. They didn't intend to sin against me, but their sin and their divorce impacted the rest of my life. But always, our sin always has impact on others. 
Verse 20, back in the story, says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. So I'm going to put this on the screen for you, the impact of our sin. Our sin always affects others. Original sin, in other words, the sin of Adam, affected all of humanity. We all inherit that sin. Parents and spouses' sins affect their families, and our collective sin affects communities. Right? All the things that we collectively do impacts the world we live in. It's not like this one sin happened way back somewhere, and we're all feeling the effects of it. Although that's true, we also join in that, and we add sin to sin, right? And that we inherit sin as we're born under sin, endemic sin, and then our parents add to it, and they sin, and, and then we grow up, and then we sin, and we add to the problem. Sin upon sin upon sin, and it impacts everyone. Think back as we're finally working our way to the other side of coronavirus. Just think back through coronavirus and all those, those moments where it seemed like one thing was piling on top of another, if it wasn't already the issues of the virus and, and the unknown pieces of that. And then there was the death of George Floyd and, and there was all of that, right? And then there was the political division and election year. And, and I just remember thinking so many times throughout the year, like, man, I, we need one more thing. Like, you know, like we need to be punched in the face. And, and like this, like it was just a lot. And all of those things collectively just pile and weigh on us. And then our responses and all that we do and leadership failures and just all the things that we go through put us in the place where we're at now. Verse 21, when King David heard all these things, he was angry. Now I want you to think of King David today not as the father of these three people and so far involved, Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. But I want you to think of him as the man, the man we looked at last week and the impact of his decision. So his lust for Bathsheba got out of control, right? Caused him to continue and sin more. He sinned sexually with her. He, affected, uh, he violated her marriage. He violated his marriage, right? He affected Uriah, her husband, both in the affair and then in the plan to cover it up and then ultimately by killing him or having him killed. His sin ultimately leads to Uriah's death and the death of their child, hers and his and Bathsheba's, as she is pregnant. All these things that, that he did, they're really the same as we're just hearing about in Amnon's, right? All these things are the very things Amnon is doing, right? We're seeing this sexual sin get out of control. We're seeing violating her and, and who she is. And, and we see all these things from father now being kind of relived or lived out differently again in the next generation. All of David's sins show up in Amnon. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. Note that Amnon's sin has now caused an anger in Absalom. And, and we understand that. When somebody hurts someone we love, we get angry. But we're talking about years of anger that get built up in Absalom and cause him to act in a different way. And he didn't ask for that. He wasn't involved. He didn't consent to sleeping with somebody else. And yet, he's angry. And again, it doesn't have to be this sin that they're dealing with. Like his anger now is going to be the thing that he needs to get a hold of because it's going to affect him. Verse 23, and after two full years... Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, 
which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servants. So Absalom invites David's sons and families all to come and join in a feast. Verse 25, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. So two years go by, Absalom is sitting on this anger, right? This, this, this thing that has been eating up inside of him. Verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not ordered you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. So now Amnon has been murdered by Absalom, his brother, right? Again, consider David's sins, right? Absalom takes these matters into his own hands, just like David does with Uriah. He doesn't trust God to handle them, right? He doesn't walk them back. He lies and he plots just like his father did. And he ultimately kills Amnon, just like David ultimately has Uriah killed. Not only do we see David's failures with Bathsheba play out in Amnon, but we see his failures on the cover-up play up in Absalom. We see his sons living in much the same way of his failures. If you're in a community group, we've been working through uh, the entire Bible, but we've been working this section where we've been in First and Second Samuel. We've been working through the rise and fall of Israel. Not too long ago, we read through Second Kings, and I thought of this verse. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. This is generations later as kings come and go. David leaves Solomon. After Solomon, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam. And then there's a series of kings. And then this guy, Jeroboam. And it says that this one king will come in and, and all his sins. He'll kind of do all these things that are wrong. And then he'll die. And his son will rise up. And his son will perpetuate all these sins. And a lot of this has to do with idolatry and all kinds of things. But it's just powerful to hear that the sins of the father continue to pass down. It says he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son, right, which he made Israel to sin, all that his fathers had done. Right, then we see the impact of what we do affecting other people. Verse 30, back in 2 Samuel 13. While we were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's son, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother said, let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord, the king, so, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. As often, the first time the news story comes out, it's wrong, right? It gets the message like, hey, all your kids are dead, and, and Absalom did this. And then he figured out, okay, well, Actually, what happened is Absalom murdered Amnon. Verse 34, and Absalom fled. The young man who had kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, 
So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their, their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly, right? The king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now, we don't have an answer to this. We don't have a number. We can't qualify, but, but consider this. How many people right now, as all these people weep bitterly, have been affected by Amnon's sin two years earlier? Right? It goes so much farther than just Tamar. And it goes so much farther than just this kind of recent snapshot in their history when this thing takes place. But years later, what we see is a family being ripped apart by this one act. By this one man's sin, we see an entire family right now grieving years later. Verse 27, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimed, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur, and he was there for three years. And the spirit of the king no long, uh, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So this is five years after the beginning of this chapter. And here's what happens. David has had to mourn the loss of the purity and the life that was Tamar's. Because as the news comes to him, they're like, Absalom killed Amnon because of what Amnon did to Tamar. And it's not new news to David. David already knows. David had to mourn a tragedy done to his daughter by his son. And then two years later, he has to mourn the loss of that son. And it says that three years go by and he's finally comforted over the grieving of his son. And now he's got to mourn the loss of Absalom, who's been gone for three years because he killed Amnon. Five years later, David is still suffering over Amnon's actions, which are a direct result of his actions years before that. Because our sin always impacts the people around us. Our sin always affects others. No matter how personal or how consensual or how whatever we think it is, our sins always impact other people. But there's also good news. Just as David, a father, is passing this on, this, this sin and this, just this ugly mess that David has been passing on to his sons, God has provided a way that is different. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so yes, in our father, our great, 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 whatever father, in Adam, all of us die and all of us inherit sin. And we're still paying the penalty for Adam's sin so many years ago. But God, our heavenly father, has also given us an inheritance. An inheritance of righteousness and an inheritance of healing an inheritance of redemption. And so, yes, we inherit sin, but then God gives us his others, his only son, God, the son, Jesus Christ, who lives without sin and, and dies a death for us, takes our penalty on the cross, and then buried in the ground to forgive our sin, but also resurrected to give us new life, to heal the things that have been done against us, to pour his spirit out on us and in us, to restore us to being children of God. So yes, we talk about forgiveness of sin, and yes, that's important. Our sin must be covered. Justice requires a penalty. 
And yes, Jesus has paid that penalty. And, and yes, even though, even though we're forgiven, we have to walk back through those decisions. Yes, sometimes there's a, a penalty here or an outcome or consequences. But what we also have to learn is that our sin, our decisions also affect everyone else. But that the gospel is sufficient for that. That the gospel is enough for not only the sins we've committed, but the sins that have been committed against us. God has provided redemption in both. And today, as we take communion together, we get to think through that. And so I, I want to pray, and then we're going to take communion together as a family. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather this morning, and we look at the impact of David's sin in his son's lives, and then his son's sins in the lives of their entire family. And we recognize in this moment that our sin is much greater than we often give it credit for, that, our, that the impact of our choices is much more than we often think it is, and that our sin affects everybody around us, and that there's no getting around that. But the good news on the other side of that, Jesus, you have come not only for our sin, but to heal us of the things that have, been, that have sinned against us. That not only is Amnon or Absalom or David forgiven for sin in the gospel, but also Tamar is restored. That there's healing and redemption for the hurting, for the broken. And Jesus, as we all sit here today, we're all sinners and have been sinned against. Some at deeper levels than others and with different things. But all of it is cared for in the gospel. Jesus, help us to see through those lenses today, both sides of this story, especially as we celebrate and take and share in the gospel through communion. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys should have received communion when you came in. If you didn't, just slip your hand up and, and uh, we've got some folks who will bring it around. Lucky's got you covered. Just keep your hand up until you get it, please. It was on the night that Jesus is betrayed, and, and Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he's ready, getting ready to give his life to cover sin. And as he does this, he sits with his disciples around a meal, and he begins to explain the days that are coming about what he will accomplish in that. Lucky there's one back there and two up front. And he begins to explain what he will accomplish over those days how that his body will be broken and punished, but he does so to make us whole. And that his blood will be shed, he will die, but that's to cover our sin. And as he sits with his disciples, he takes the meal, the, the Passover meal that they were celebrating, and he holds up the bread and he says, he blesses it and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. He reminds us that our brokenness is covered by him, by the gospel. That he is broken, that we might be able to be made whole. And then he lifts the cup up and he blesses the cup and he, he passes it to him. He says, listen, this is a, a covenant, a promise, a, a seal of forgiveness in my blood. I will die to cover the sin of the world. And so we are kind of working back into a, a, a pattern of communion every Sunday. So now we're at first and third and probably some point in the summer, we'll get back to every Sunday because this is that moment where we proclaim the gospel over ourselves. Paul says this, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You literally proclaim the gospel over yourselves and remind yourselves of your need for forgiveness and the healing and redemption found 
in the gospel. And so church, those of you that consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to take communion as we pray. So let's pray. Jesus, as we gather today, it is in the power of your resurrected life and, and all that you have accomplished by giving yourself for us. And so you took bread and you blessed it and I ask that you would bless these, these wafers that we have. You said, this is my body broken for you. you your brokenness exchanged to make us whole from the things that we've done against ourselves or in ourselves and for the things that have been done against us. You make us whole. Church, take and eat. Jesus, as you took the cup, you blessed it. I ask that you would bless this as well. You said this is a covenant, a promise, a guarantee in your blood that we're forgiven. That if anyone is in Christ, he is forgiven. He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that you have secured it with your own life. That you forgive our sins and you heal the sins that have been forgiven committed against us. So church, take a drink. Lord, we stand with Paul as he wrote to Corinth and we remind ourselves that as often as we eat of the bread or drink of the cup, we proclaim the gospel, our need and our surrender to it. And we are grateful and we love you. It's in your name we pray.